0: Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is For the Record program number nine fourteen. Interview with Gerard Williams, the co-author of Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. This is being recorded on July 6th of the year 2016. It is my great pleasure and my privilege to bring through our airways. Gerard Williams, again, the co-author of Grey Wolf. Gerard, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Dave. It's um, a great privilege to be on the um, Swiftfire Report. I've been a great follower of yours for some time.
0: All Reggie uh, In the book Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler, uh, you, early on, on pages 10 and 11, I should maybe preface this by saying that uh, People might be inclined to think, you know, what, Hitler escaped, what, Martin Bormann, Borman, Alan, you know, what, and certainly the mainstream media have given your work and also the Hunting Hitler series uh, that uh, you did uh, that kind of treatment, like, oh, my goodness, this is conspiracy theory. But there is a profound context, and I would like to enter the discussion by reading two sentences that you have on pages 10 and 11. You write, The cartels created in the aftermath of World War I and the Great Depression were now more powerful than many governments, and these international corporations were so deeply intertwined that national identity became increasingly opaque. This would be a major factor in the later German execution under the direction of Martin Bormann of Aktion Feuerland, Project Land of Fire. I wonder if you would expound on that for us.
1: I think it's quite simple, really, Dave. The basic tenet of it all is that money is at the root of all evil. Um, There were huge investments by American companies in Nazi Germany, in effect, they built the Reich or helped the Reich build. Hitler had a very poor country when he took it over. They'd been paying massive war reparations to France and the other members of the, the 1914-18 conflict. And so it looked like a very attractive place to put American money. Um, there was also great American and Nazi influence in the U.S. at that time. I'm talking about the American Bund for a start, Um and people like the Ford Motor Company and IBM and ITT saw huge opportunities to go to Germany and make money. Um, at this stage, we, we have to be a little fair. There it wasn't, unless you'd actually read Mein Kampf, there wasn't the open display of anti-Semitism. We didn't have concentration camps. Well, they had concentration camps, but not at the level that they later would have. So it looked like an opening market, uh, just like Eastern European Eastern Europe did when the Soviet bloc fell. But most of these businesses continued um, to do business in Nazi Germany until, well, 1940, 1941. Um, there were over 300 companies, American companies, doing business as usual with Germany. Um, and you know, Even after Germany declared war on America, and I think a lot of your listeners may not realize that it was Hitler who actually dragged America into the European war um, on just after Pearl Harbor. Um, there wasn't any suggestion that the Americans were looking to declare war on Adolf Hitler. Um, they were obviously at war with the Japanese, but it was Hitler that declared war on America. But throughout World War II, people like the Ford Motor Company, Henry Ford, was a huge favorite of Adolf Hitler's. Um, and for his services to Nazi Germany, Henry Ford was awarded the Grand Cross of the Order of the German Eagle, the Third Reich's highest civilian ward for which foreigners were allowed to have. Um, and the Ford Motor Company made something like 35 to 40 percent of all vehicles used by Nazi Germany during World War II. That's a huge amount. And the money eventually made its way back to Motown. Um, yeah, IBM prepared the counting machines that were used in the concentration camps to dispatch the Jewish population of Europe. And there is pretty good evidence that there were American engineers on the ground of the murder camps actually helping this machinery work it t owned 20% of the Fokkerville Fighter um, Aircraft Company. So American investment was helping German fighter planes shoot down American bombers over Europe. Um, one little story, at the end of the war, the Ford Motor Company's plants in Germany had been off the bombing lists. You can tell how much um, influence they um, were able to use in Washington. So they were off the bombing lists. But a bomber command uh, was coming home, and it still had full bomb bays. And they saw these plants, and they offloaded on them, uh, causing a huge amount of damage. Well, the Ford Motor Company took the United States government to court after the war and won something like $5 million in reparations because American planes had bombed Nazi-producing motor vehicle company in Germany. (laughs) Yeah, it's all about money.
0: Yeah, I think in many ways, uh, some of these relationships are a manifestation of and foreshadowed the later development of what we are now hearing as globalization. Uh, In uh, The Grey Wolf, one of the principal figures who cut the deal for Hitler's escape uh, wore two hats, that of espionage agent and also uh, powerful corporate lawyer. Tell us about Alan Dulles, his brother, John Foster, and their Sullivan and Cromwell law firm. Sullivan
1: and Cromwell were one of the major representations of American corporate power in Berlin in the 30s. I think they left in 39 in the end. They just couldn't put up with the bad press. But Alan Dulles was very close to Martin Borman, as was one of Dulles's best friends, um, John J. McCloy. Who actually, I think, sat with Bormann at the um, Berlin Olympics in '36, and these weren't just uh, corporate friends. You know, these were people who got on together, met each other on regular occasions, obviously to talk business as well as everything else. Um, Alan Dulles, to me, is possibly the greatest American traitor, the greatest traitor to your nation that the world has ever seen. He put personal. Um, personal grandishment as much as anything, before everything else. The man was completely immoral, had oh, dozens of mistresses, um, thought he'd get away with murder, and regularly did get away with murder, on uh, many levels. Um, interesting enough, his older brother, not quite so much, although he's an important figure. But the, the figure in the family, who to me is possibly one of the most fascinating, is Eleanor Lansing Dulles. Um, Eleanor, the youngest sister, was described by her brother, um, the eldest brother, as a committed Nazist. Um, she lived in Berlin, again, before the war, um, and would go back and run the German Department of State post-war, which oversaw the uh, rebuilding of West Germany. Uh, so she's quite key to it all. But Alan Dulles seems to have had a pretty close, close relationship with Martin Bormann, um, either through Fritz Tussen, um, the steel magnate, who became quite unpopular with the Nazis, um, but he did know him, he was in contact with him regularly.
0: Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that i 've noted is that when when someone uses the phrase "conspiracy theory," people just roll their eyes and say, "Oh my goodness, you know that is silly." But I think a much more useful and far less stigmatized term is networking, and that really is what we're looking at here. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Fritz Keeson. Who was he? What was? I think,
1: I think, David, it might be interesting for your audience to hear a little bit about me, okay. because although I've been um, slapped as a conspiracy theorist, I've been a journalist since I was 19. I've been to 85 countries. I've worked for Reuters Television. I've worked for BBC News and Sky News, all its senior foreign positions. I covered both Iraq wars, um, the end of Iraq 1 and the end of Iraq 2, um, I was in Rwanda. Um, I was in Yugoslavia for two and a half years while that country collapsed. And I have never done a conspiracy theory or a theory in my life. I went to Argentina originally when we started doing this, not with any idea of doing a, a, a book or a film or anything about Adolf Hitler's escape. I went to do other stories. Liked Argentina so much that I wanted to go back. Started looking around, and for the first time in my life, my cameraman partner and myself who he'd been everywhere to and done everything, um, thought that we'd do a silly film about the idea that Adolf Hitler might have been able to escape by submarine to Argentina at the end of the war. After about six months of research, um, this started not to look silly at all. I mean, it didn't. We have BBC reports of the Russians taking the bunker, and we have Time magazine reports of what the Russians found there, including six doubles of Hitler. Um... So I got Simon Dunstan involved. Simon's a military historian of, of repute. I mean, he's written over 50 books and is the world's leading expert on the fight of, uh, fighting armoured vehicle. He's a tank man, but he knows more about World War II than most people do. And when I showed my information, the research to Simon, he said, um, oh, don't be stupid, Gerald. We can't write this book. And then he read it and he said, we have to write this book. Um, so that sort of backgrounds me a bit Um Back to your original question, Fritz Tussen of Tussen Steel, later Tussen Krupp, um, was a senior financier and supporter of the Nazi party quite early on. Um, but he did fall out with them later, or they fell out with him, and um, imprisoned him for a little while. But again, he was very close to Martin Bormann. Bormann, known as the Brown Eminence, was the man from about 1941 Nobody got to Adolf Hitler unless they went through Bormann. Bormann covered all the exits and all the entrances. Um, he's been almost dismissed in history, the Reichsleiter, which I find very, very strange. I mean, those people who would have seen the movie Downfall just see him as a fat, quiet lump in the corner, um, dressed in brown. But that's not Martin Bormann. I mean, Martin Bormann was known as the um, telex general amongst the Nazi high command because he was in touch with everybody all the time, all his... Um, all the Gauleiters, the, all, all the heads of the cities and the towns, all reported to Bormann because Bormann was head of the party. Um, he's often described as Hitler's secretary, but he wasn't. He was secretary of the party. And that means, you know, he's like secretary of state. Doesn't mean he took a pen and a paper around with him. Um, and Bormann is key to this whole thing. I mean, he's, um, he's the criminal genius behind this criminal gang, uh, in my opinion, from my research.
0: Uh, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, uh, speaking of Bormann, said, Now there is a real master of deceit and intrigue. And coming from Reinhard Heydrich, that is quite, um, well, a compliment in in that context. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, Heydrich Heydrich was pretty good at himself as well. I know. Um, (laughs) If if the Czech resistance hadn't taken him out in Prague, um, it would have been a very different world because he in many ways, was the man who forced through the, finals, the final solution um, at the Wannsee Conference. And um, it was Heydrich who, although he may have had Jewish blood himself, which is, you know, one of those ridiculous things of, of fate, um, it was Heydrich who was making the damn thing work in the East.
0: Yeah, and again, he himself was a master of deceit and intrigue. The German word for power is Macht, which is derived from Machiavellian, and I don't think Anyone embodied that better than Martin Bormann. Now, uh, Bormann and the Third Reich, well, Bormann saw the Third Reich beginning to decline, obviously, following, uh, the the defeats at Stalingrad and North Africa and with the battles of the Atlantic turning and with Japan having been set back uh, at Midway and in the Pacific. The handwriting, in a sense, was on the wall. Uh, Bormann and the Reich and Axon opera- and, and, uh, Adlerflug and Operation Safe Haven, the shipping of Nazi capital abroad and attempts at predicting that. If you would uh, develop that for us.
1: I think you're right. After Stalingrad and then the, the huge battle at Kursk, which um, for the first time German armor was fought to standstill uh, by Soviet troops. Um, Bormann realized that they couldn't win militarily. No matter how many men they could throw at the uh, Nazis in the at the Soviets in the East, the Soviets would always have more men. Um, more and more there was talk of the second front being opened up in Europe with um, an Allied invasion of France. Um, we were already fighting up through Italy um, and that was, that was going okay in places. Um, my dad was there. Um, and Bormann realized that the only way he could save Germany, not necessarily the Nazi party in my opinion, but the only way he could save Germany was to move all or as much as possible of its capital, its patents, um, and some of its intelligent people out to safe havens, the biggest one being Argentina, but they also used Turkey and Syria. Um, physical gold shipments were being sent out as well until uh, we landed in France, and uh, they were being shipped down through... Uh, France, um, and Italy, and then onto ships, usually Portuguese, Spanish, or Argentine, um, flagships. And so physical material was making its way to Argentina as well. But the easiest way, and the Swiss were more than happy to do it, was simply to get the Swiss to make an international transfer. They charged 6% on the deal, and the money went into places like the Banco Atlantico in Buenos Aires, the Banco Germanico in Buenos Aires, and into, um, Oh, the various companies that were over there, everybody was represented. So you'd have Siemens, Mannesman, two huge conglomerates even today. Um, I think it was the British intelligence that described Siemens internationally as basically the SS's Foreign spy Service.
2: You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. Long article-length descriptions of the For the Record programs are available at SpitfireList.com. Also featuring information that wasn't in the original program due to the limitations of time.
1: So all this huge amounts of money, we're talking country buying sizes of money, was heading into Argentina. In 1941, this was also being used to support two German spies, Eva Perón, Evita, and Juan Domingo Perón, both of whom were in the pay of Abwehr, uh, German military intelligence from 1941. Um, now this was this was uncovered by a wonderful man, in my opinion. His name is Silvio Santander, who wrote, um, a book, it's only ever been published in Spanish, um, when he was in exile in Uruguay. And he was very much a, a democrat, democrat, um, and very much an anti-peronist. Um, and he exposed it all post-war, even showing the, the, check stubs that had been paid out to a Vita. Um, just incredible. So, Borman knew that it was all over, and he knew that to be successful, they needed a place that was very far away and very remote. Um, I'm trying to remember how much... Argentina is something like five times the size of Texas, or maybe three times the size of Texas. And as I'm sure your listeners will know, Texas is big. It also had its own Nazi party. Um, there's incredible footage, which you can find on YouTube, of 30,000 of them celebrating the Anschluss when Germany and Austria became one country, um, in Luna Park in Buenos Aires. And it's it's a huge Nazi rally in um, in Argentina. Argentina had also been key to supporting the early finance of the Nazi party. In some ways, the Nazi party, well, was midwifed out of Argentina um, by the Eichhorn family at the Hotel Eden in La Falda, who used to send large sums of money to Hitler from the 1920s onwards um it was their money that enabled him to grab power and um they were avid supporters both during and after the war of the nazi party um, and senior um senior figures within argentina's own nazi party um to my knowledge it's the only country in the world that actually had its own nazi party there were fascist parties throughout europe um in croatia in belgium um in norway uh yeah and in France, but nobody else ever called themselves the Nazi party, which um they didn't uh, they did in argentina uh,
0: as the Reich was shipping its uh, and, and again uh, stressing that uh before uh, the military defeat became finalized, Bormann and uh, his subordinates were shipping the wealth of the Reich overseas to uh, basically finance a post-war resurgence of Germany's fortunes, uh, Operation Safe Haven was put together on the Allied side, uh, specifically Uh, by the Treasury Department in the U.S. to try to interdict that uh, flow. Tell us, if you would, about Safe Haven.
1: Well, I mean, looking back at it, remarkably unsuccessful in many ways. I mean, um, both Portugal and Spain, which is where a lot of this was filtering out through, were uh, right-wing countries. Spain was um, fascist under Franco, and Franco owed Germany big time because without the Support of Nazi troops during his um, own civil war, he would never have made it to um, become Generalissimo, uh, the leader of fascist Spain. Um, Portugal was pretty anti the um, Allies as well. Both countries were a hotbed of espionage from both sides. Um, I mean, I've visited the hotel in Lisbon where uh, they all used to go and meet all the different spies from the different sides. Um, sometimes they just declare, well, it's not really our war, we're just here to, to do work. Um, Safe haven is also stopped by some rather dark people in America because I'm trying to remember exactly the figure, but it's some hundreds of um, Americans stay in Nazi Germany during the war, working for American corporations, and are arrested by American forces at the end of the war. Not a single one of them is ever prosecuted under the Trading with the Enemy Act. They're all released and are allowed to go back home. Um, so, again, if they had been um, interrogated, they may have been able to um, point safe haven in the right way. But with we're talking about Nazis having large amounts of help, um, distinctly in Spain, which had its own effective rat line, um, very effective rat line, many men got out that way. Um, the Vatican, which was a major supporter of them post-war. Um, and you have really strange things like the whole... Um, Nazi sympathizing Croatian cabinet, the Wastashi cabinet, um managed to get out via the Vatican. And they take Croatia's guild reserves with them to Argentina. Um and they're helped in that by members of OSS and CIC, military intelligence at the time. And their instructions had to come from somebody. Um recently I've been wondering whether while Bill Donovan knew all about this as well, um I like to think he didn't. Um Courageous Combat Soldier, World War I. But I wonder if Alan Dulles was just able to pull the wool over Donovan's eyes or whether Donovan was central to this. Um, difficult question. You may have some ideas about that, though.
0: Yeah, actually, um, in the early 1920s, uh, uh, J.P. Morgan gave uh, what uh, Bill Donovan something like $6 million. The figure may be slightly off to go to Germany to begin financing right-wing groups in Germany, political groups. And that was a lot of money in the early 1920s. And but uh, then he was basically, uh, I've forgotten the name of the firm, Donovan Leisure and someone else, but then was comfortably installed in a powerful Wall Street law firm. Then after the war, uh, Bill Donovan, along with Sir William Stevenson and other luminaries, Edward Stepinius, uh, FDR's former Secretary of State and a J.P. Morgan protege, set up the World Commerce Corporation, whose specific directive was to channel Uh, the capital flows back into pre-war networks with the aim of replacing and rebuilding the German cartels, which, of course, William Stevenson had done so much to interdict. So uh, I suspect that Donovan knew full well what was going on. But (laughs) certainly Alan Bellis was uh, at at the epicenter of this uh, insidious conspiracy. Uh, if you would tell us about uh, the U.S. and British, aware certainly of Alan Dulles and his treason, the wiretapping of him, and then how did the Third Reich enter into that uh, concatenation?
1: Um, I must admit that I, I'm, I'm not really aware of the wiretapping and the evidence against Dulles. So I um I'm not sure if we have covered that. And if we have, it's probably Simon who did it, not me. Um, so it's, it's difficult to know. I, I, I find all of this really, really difficult. I'm, you know, I'm the son of a World War II combat soldier. My dad fought for six years. And the stuff I'd learned in history is all very, very different to this. There seems to be, um, a good America and a seriously bad America. Um, And they're two sides of the same coin. Um, The seriously bad America for me is embodied in people like Alan Dulles, J.P. Morgan, Chase Manhattan, um, Henry Ford, um, and other people today. And good America seems to be Eisenhower, JFK, um, people who really were patriots. How could they not know what was going on underneath their noses? I mean, in some ways, we can come to it later, the... uh, the really clever distraction tactics used by Dulles, which are just amazing, um, post-war. But how could they not know? And why didn't they do anything about it? Um, there's a, 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 an amazing example of a man called Captain Ian Bell, who was a Nazi hunter at the end of war. At the end of the war, and in '46, he's in northern Italy, and he has rumours of the large SS presence in um, mountains, uh, just inside the Austrian border. So, and among them is meant to be Martin Borman. So he calls in an airstrike and the airstrike panics this SS bunch and they manage to capture quite a few. And then in his interrogation, they say, yes, Martin Borman is there and he's planning on leaving. Um, Bell follows him with two sergeants for 670 miles down through, um, down through Italy to the post, to the coastal port of Bari, B-A-R-I. And about Two-thirds of the way down, manages to get to a phone. They don't have radios at that stage. He manages to get to a phone, calls up his commanding officer and says, I've got Martin Borman. I'm sure it's Borman. We've got you know, people saying it's him. He's got a couple of trucks with him. We don't know what's in them. Um, but it is distinctly Martin Borman. Now, Borman is a wanted war criminal. He's you know, declared a, a war criminal um, at Nuremberg. Um, and they haven't found his body, so he's on the run. And uh, he's a declared war criminal. And Dell's commanding officer said, well, you can follow, but do not apprehend.
0: An, an interesting thing to uh, give as a directive from one of the top Nazis. Uh, very quickly, uh, probably a section that was written by Simon Dunstan. Uh, the, both U.S. and British Intel were tapping, wiretapping Alan Dulles, because they knew, as you said so well, he was a major traitor. He was ostensibly working for the OSS, America's World War II intelligence service, and the predecessor to the CIA, but he was at all times networking in Switzerland, the perfect place to do it, with his Nazi clients and uh, Sullivan and Cromwell's Nazi clients. Uh, the goal was to take put German industrialists and financiers in the defendant's dock at Nuremberg and then have them uh, uh, basically incriminate uh, their American co-conspirators. And what was forecast as a banker's trial would have seen some of the leading names in American finance and industry in the defendant's dock at Nuremberg. Uh, the Third Reich was aware of this. They went to Dulles said, we, too, have been tapping your phone. Uh, we're going to stop doing that, but the U.S. and the British are doing that. And from that point, uh, Dulles was basically, I-, I would say, and it seems to be the implication in the book, working more for the Reich than he was for the U.S. At all times, he was working both sides of the street. This was a major element in interdicting the attempt at interdicting uh, the Foreman flight capital. Uh, a major factor, uh, Gerard, in this uh, infernal chessboard, our game of chess, uh, concerns some of the leading treasures of Western art. There was a recent film, The Monuments Men. Tell us about uh, art, and uh, although the Germans may not have known art, they knew what they liked. How did that figure into this?
1: <laughs> well, we get, um, we get Fat Herman involved in the story here in many ways. Herman Goering, one of the uh, greatest, most um, oh, kleptomaniacs in history, I, thought, I suppose, um, manages to raid every museum, every art gallery in occupied Europe. So we're talking from, well, all sort of Paris at least, um, and all points in between. Um, and they accrue, uh, and part of it is later for the Führer Museum, the museum that's meant to be built in Germania, Hitler's European capital, or post-war um, and they they steal everything, um, and I mean everything <laughs> just incredible, the amount of art that they managed to get to get their hands on, um, you know pretty much the whole of the Louvre uh, went to them um, and the grand masters from Holland, the old masters from Holland, and um, oh altar pieces from Brussels and Ghent and everywhere everywhere and um, Goering had a lot of it himself at Carinhall, Hall, his, um, well, to call the hunting lodge is a bit dubious, his castle, um, where he kept most of his, um, artworks. And the rest of it was stored, um, the rest of it was stored in various places, all of which was known, were known to Martin Bormann, uh, because this was the, in some ways, the intellectual capital of Europe, the, um, the real wealth of European civilization. Something that couldn't be counted in Reichmarks or Pounds. Um And at the end of the war, um, and I believe as part of the deal between Bormann and Dulles, about two thirds of that treasure made its way back to its original owners. Um quite a lot of it didn't because it was also taken from you know, Jewish private homes. And um many items are still in dispute. Even now, seventy something years on, um, they're still disputed in their ownership. But it was uh, the biggest heist in history. I mean, really, the biggest heist in history. Um, and one thing that has surprised me is how easily people found it. In the fog of the end of the war, it seems you could just drive up to a salt mine in Merkis and you'd find uh, everything, loads and loads of things.
2: You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. You can subscribe to the comments posted on the SpitfireList.com website most of them by a brilliant contributing editor who uses the moniker Terrafractal, Fractal, specializing, but by no means exclusively, in economic and financial matters.
1: One of the key people involved in this is Ian Fleming, uh commander, naval commander Ian Fleming, who was um, the writer of the James Bond books, um, but also led a unit called um, 30 Assault Unit, um, also known as Fleming's Red Indians. And these Red Indians would roam ahead of um, Allied troops, picking up key scientists, key Nazi scientists, um, establishing where these um, art dumps were. Um, and even, I mean, history tells us that Vene von Braun, that disgusting creature, um, surrendered to, I think, Patton's men. Uh, but he didn't. Vene von Braun and his whole team were picked up by 30 assault units from within what was designated Russian territory or Russian controlled territory, and brought to the American army. Um, they didn't just arrive on Werner von Braun's brother, brother's bicycle, as has been portrayed in many many films and uh, a load of other things. And um, for those people who don't know, Werner von Braun um, basically put America on the moon. Um, he and his team of um, Nazi scientists, Werner von Braun was a colonel in the SS. He'd been a member of the party since, I think, '36. Responsible for the V1 and V2 flying, flying rockets, um, that did quite a lot of damage to London during World War Two, and later to, um, Allied, Allied held ports in the Netherlands. Um, and responsible also for the deaths of probably thirty to 50,000, um, slave workers in his factories where these damned things were built. Um, later lauded, appeared on, um, the Disney programs and, Lauded, there is even a plan for NASA to uh, name their first interstellar craft, the Venner Von Braun. Um, for me, it was like putting, oh, whoever did plan nine eleven in charge of America's air, airways. Um, uh, you know, it's just ridiculous, but real politics, I think they call it, Dave. Um, you know, the enemy by me is my friend and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, it really is, uh, well, depressing and, for me, infuriating. I remember as a small child watching uh, the Walt Disney television program. I can't remember what it was called. Maybe The Wonderful World of Disney. I'm not sure. But seeing Renner von Braun with his heavy accent. And at the time, the journalistic portrayal of von Braun was that he was an, an apolitical technocrat. You know, he just... He just wanted to, uh, to get advance the human condition, and he had to work with the Reich, et cetera. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth, as you know that he was an SS officer and deeply involved in the brutal death by forced labor of tens of thousands of uh, prisoners uh, in uh, the uh, penitentiary Nordhausen complexes. Um, and the we should note that uh the units like uh the thirty assault unit of Ian Fleming were recruiting many other third reich scientists as well. Um uh, if you would just briefly tell us about the advanced German military infrastructure and how that figured in to uh ultimately uh uh the Grey Wolf Gambit.
1: Well, <laughs> Let's start at the top. I think that they had much more advanced nuclear capability than um, we thought that they had. I think they had a lot of enriched uranium. Uh, They just didn't know how to make it go off with a big bang. Um, There's talk from Japanese um, military attaches of them actually using a battlefield nuke at Kursk. They also had very advanced rocketry, um, and that would become of incredible importance as the two global superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, would face up to each other <coughs> at the end of World War II. Um, these were effectively the first world's the world's first intercontinental ballistic um missiles. But they also had things like fly by wire, um which would enable a rocket to be launched from a shoulder, surface to air, and to be guided to its target by wires. Um, they had basically the world 's first cruise missile in the V1, and America, I think it was in 1947 actually proved that this could be fired off a submarine. Um, they did various tests on firing uh, German weapons. Um, but they they're amazing quite, quite, the Nazis were amazing in that quite a lot of their science is is, is bad. Um, you know it, it just doesn't go anywhere. They spend billions on it and millions on it, and it just never happens to go anywhere. They had something like 12 or 14 key battle tanks. Um, if they concentrated on one, they might have been able to take the, uh, the Soviet armor out. But no, they had 12 and they were, you know, designed by Porsche and, um, <clears throat> had so many working parts that they were incredibly difficult to fix after a battle. Whereas the T-34 you could hit with a hammer and go, it would start going again. But they had many of the world's leading scientists and, um, I think again, we knew where to, we knew where to pick them up. They didn't just come and surrender to the Allies, because um, nobody really knew what was going to happen in Germany post-war. So we knew where to pick them up. We had a list. Somebody gave the Allies a list of where these scientists were, of where the art was. Um, and if we go back to the nuclear supplies, it seems that um, a German submarine delivered a huge amount of rich uh, uranium when it surrendered. Um, to the Americans at the end of World War II, uh, just before the um, atom bombs were dropped. And there's stuff that's coming out of Los Alamos now, which says that without this enriched uranium, it wouldn't have been possible to build two atomic weapons. Um, So and Martin Borman or somebody, um, this submarine originally was going to Japan with various plans and Luftwaffe generals and Japanese military attaches and everything else on it. Halfway across the Atlantic, um, the captain changes his mind and um, heads to a North American port um, up in New England. Uh, the two Japanese commit suicide and throw themselves over the, over, the, uh, over the side. And this large, and it's one of the last large transport submarines, um, surrenders to you guys. And um, ah, who's the director of the project at Los Alamos, the famous professor?
0: Uh, Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer's
1: at the dock waiting for it.
0: Oh, wow, I did not realize that.
1: Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff coming out now. So the submarine, I think, is U-235, and the element for enriched uranium is U-234. It may be the other way around, Dave. uh, But, yeah, it's – and to me, this is all part of the deal, which says, Bonn and Dulles do a deal. And that says, I'm getting away, Adolf Hitler's getting away, General Muller's getting away and as many of our cohorts as we possibly can take, but we'll worry about that. In return, don't come looking for us. Um, we we will give you um, as many scientists as we possibly can that haven't been captured already by the Russians. We'll return the artworks of uh, Europe, but we won't do this until we know that we can get out of here. Um, and that, to me, is exactly what happened. Um, and in some ways, you know... Maybe that was the right thing to do as far as Alan Dulles was concerned, but it doesn't feel morally right to me in any way, shape or form.
0: Well, I think that the the fact that uh, Alan Dulles was facing the possibility of indictment for war crimes, because, again, U.S. and British intel were on to him, then in come the Germans and say, yeah, we've been wiretapping you, too, and so have the British and the Americans, so let's uh, let's work together. You know, again, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, although in Dulles' case uh, really is more a case of uh, a Janus, faced entity uh, turning in the other direction. So the deal between Dulles and Bormann involves, on the one hand, German military expertise, rockets, uh, enriched uranium, other advanced technologies, also uh, artwork as well. Uh, do you think it would also be fair to say that picking hands off of the German flight capital program was also a major part of the operation.
1: Well, when Safe Haven starts in 44, um, the flight of capital has been going on for a year. And although in 44 it's not p- possible to shift physical gold out of Europe, it is possible to shift physical gold to Switzerland and then return the Swiss to a simple money transfer. Um, and I think that you know, Bormann had already, without probably Dulles' help, had already worked out that, you know, he had to get enough money out of Germany so that there could be a Germany at the end of at the end of the war. Um, you know, he'd already seen things like the Morgenthau Plan, which was going to turn Germany back into a 15th century agrarian economy. Um, and the Germans took that quite seriously. They really did think that America was possible. Um, it was possible for America to, to perform scorched earth on that country. And what they didn't realize is that's only one part of America thought that way. Another part of it thought, excuse my language, oh dear, we've got huge investments still there, even though their industrial base had been destroyed. Um, the companies that um, America had shareholdings in were still operating as companies.
0: And the. Um... Another factor, too, uh, maybe uh, later on, we can come to this. In addition to the corporate uh, and economic motives, uh, a re-Nazified, to an extent, albeit underground, Germany was seen as an important anti-communist bulwark against the former Soviet Union, much as it was uh, pre-World War II. Um, Well, you know, there
1: there was still a huge number of men under arms um, in Nazi Germany at the fall. I mean, I think Patton took the surrender of a couple of SS divisions, let, let the officers keep their sidearms, um, and, you know, the men just stacked their rifles and Patton wanted to do, rearm them and throw them across the Elbe of the Russians. So there there are 300,000 German troops in Denmark. Um, you know, the, there is a, there are a lot of trained soldiers in Germany who, given the right leadership, um, would have been able to have been used against the Soviets. So there's this is pre nuclear cold war. Um this is, you know, when hot war could have been really hot war. Um and there's a story about an SS Ukrainian division surrenders to um the Allies in Italy, and America relocates them to Canada and the United States. This is a division that's fought on the Eastern Front. It's one of the vilest and most cruel divisions that the SS produced, and that's saying something. It's just um, the,
0: the Galician division. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the Galicians. Very much in the uh, foreground, really, of some of the maneuvering now taking place uh, in Ukraine. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, you know, these guys were basically given passports and said, okay, well, we might need you at some stage in the future, um, so why don't you go and live in North America? And that's what they did. Um, so, I mean, it's such a fluid situation. It, it It's always been presented to me as being really simple. We won the war. We kick Germany's ass, and um, you drop two atomic weapons on Japan, and that stopped them being a problem. End of story. But, of course, nothing is that complicated. Nothing is that easy. Um, nothing is ever that easy.
0: <laughs> uh, it, it, it certainly is. Uh, well, absolutely. Um, in discussing the physical escape, of Adolf Hitler, and it was the, the on-the-ground aspects of uh, of the uh, Axion Feuerland, Feuerland meaning literally fireland, uh, the German name for Patagonia. Um, there was a 19th-century curmudgeon whose name escapes me off the top of my head, but he observed that, quote, War is God's Way of Teaching Americans Geography. Yeah, I and, that. I that. Uh, Patagonia is not a name known to most Americans. They might think it comes from uh, some sort of video game. Uh, tell us a little bit about Patagonia or Feuerland, uh, how big it was, how sparsely populated, and the tremendous German infrastructure there.
1: Well, from... The- Germany being in Argentina from the 1830s, 1840s on, um, people fleeing everything from religious persecution in Prussia and and whatever, but also going to seek new opportunities in the new world, just like they did in places like uh, Pennsylvania, um, which I understand is still has a very uh, German ethnic feel to it in some places. Um, Patagonia is massive. Um, I think it is five times the size of Texas and it, it includes the two sovereign countries, Argentina and Chile. Um, after World War I, when Germany lost all its international possessions, they were taken off them. So places like German East Africa became Tanzania under British rule, German Southwest Africa became, um, well, eventually Namibia, but it was British Southwest Africa. But the colonies in, um, in Latin America could not be taken away because they weren't colonies. They were. Um, the colonies in Latin America were just groups of people. Um, they were groups of tens of thousands of people, but they didn't weren't their own um, functioning states like Namibia and Tanzania were. Um, it's also Brazil. Brazil had a huge German population. Paraguay had a huge German population and very important German population. Um, Uruguay seems to be the only place that didn't really have that much um, German influence in it. It's had a lot more British influence in it. But also Britain had quite a lot of influence in Argentina. We built the railway network there.
2: You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. All of Dave Emery's 36 years of work is available for download on the Spitfirelist.com website. The site includes many articles not included in the programs, as well as a small library of old anti-fascist books. All of the material on the website is available for free. Sister station WFMU is podcasting the For the Record programs. To subscribe to the podcast, use the link at the top of the description for this program or on the front page. But the
1: the size of German infrastructure, especially economic infrastructure, was massive. One company in the south, Lausen, uh, which made its money out of Patagonian wool and um, and lamb uh, meat. Um, had a trading post in every community, effectively. So it gave itself a massive infrastructure and communications network.
0: Go uh, on, just the cycle for the psychological listeners, that is spelled L-A-H-U-S-E-N. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Um, so Lausanne had a communications network across across Patagonia um, and into Chile as well. Uh, but they're not the only ones. People like Siemens are there, management are there, they're doing infrastructure projects. Um, uh, it's all over the place. And they're a key part of Argentine and Chile society. But they keep very much to themselves. They don't integrate. Um, in fact, this was a major problem in Brazil. And the Brazilians said, if you want to be here, be a Brazilian. Uh, you can't maintain this, um, aloof Germanic posture in, um, our country. And that worked to a great extent, but it was never asked for in, um, in Argentina. So every major German town would have an, Ar- uh, would have a, Every native German town in Argentina would have a German school. German would be the language that was spoken there, not Spanish. Um, and if you go to places in Argentina now, you will still see, you know, it looks like Bavaria. People have this weird vision of Argentina being somewhere like the Mato Grosso, you know, the jungles of Brazil and things. It isn't. It looks like Europe. A massive amount of it. Um, and no wonder the Nazis and their German predecessors in Argentina felt at home. If you go down to San Carlos de Bariloche, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, it's like waking up in Bavaria. Um, the chocolate shops are there and the, uh, the housing is all very much, the um, Bavarian chalet style. Um, and you will see that all the estate agents have their adverts in both German and Spanish, very often with German being the first language. Um, so when the Nazis need somewhere to go, it would be, it would be like, if, um, if, Britain had won, if Britain had lost the war and Churchill and the royal family had to escape, they'd probably gone to Canada or New Zealand or Australia. And they would have felt completely at home. And that's exactly what happened to the Nazis post-war. They went to Argentina. They felt completely at home. And they were welcomed. They were welcomed by the Perons. Perons saw these people not as the murdering swine that they were, but as people who brought with them education and intelligence and culture and uh, would make a great contribution to Argentine society.
0: And a lot of money.
1: And uh, country-buying amounts of money. Just oh. huge amounts of money.
0: Uh, part, oh, oh, by the way, just uh, something of an aside. I did not realize until I read your book that the actual name Adolf is derived from wolf, the word for wolf
1: yeah it's from the um high german for wolf yeah and of course um adolf hitler used the pseudonym mr wolf um a lot uh, it was how he was first introduced to eva brown um and many of the children of the, his close cultural contacts would refer to him as uncle wolf mm-hmm. and his uh, sister paula paula hitler changed her name to paula wolf during world war 2 so that she wasn't um so that she could fade into obscurity and run a little gift shop somewhere near Berker's
0: And his headquarters, I think, on the eastern front were called the Wolfshanza.
1: Yeah, the wolf's there, the wolf's gorge. Yep. Um, yeah. It's, uh, wolf is one of those things that, that just keeps on coming back with Hitler. Um, and the whole idea of calling the book and the drama documentary I made Grey Wolf was it was the wolf getting old. Yeah. Um, quite simple.
0: <laughs> oh, A factor in the actual execution of Axon Feuerland, the escape of Adolf Hitler, through the deal between Alan Dulles and Martin Bormann, as we have outlined, uh, concerned U-boats and Admiral Dönitz's, uh development of potential U-boat escape networks. Why don't you briefly tell us about Dönitz and his plans to uh, evacuate uh, or set, set the... Stage for or set up the machinery for a submarine evacuation of Hitler to Patagonia?
1: Well, by the time that um, Bormann had realized that Hitler was, I think, proving difficult to shift out of Berlin, and he waited until almost the very last moment. But a U boat pack, the the last U boat pack of the war, um, which was called Seawolf, which to me is no. no coincidence, um, was launched into the Atlantic and the Americans were told, and there's a, a panic about this, I think, um, is it Mayor Giuliani at the time, uh, believes that robot weapons uh, launched by rocket were going to uh, dump um, chemical weapons on New York. It was actually
0: um, Mayor LaGuardia.
1: Oh, LaGuardia, sorry, yeah, Giuliani's much later me. <laughs> um, my apologies, I'm not great on domestic American politics. Um, and... Basically what this does is shift the American, um, well, not coastal patrol, but Atlantic patrols who basically have defeated the U-boat threat. Um, it shifts them north to guard the coast, um, you know, Washington to New York, basically guard the East Coast. And that enables, um, members of the U-boat pack, some of whom actually stay up north and, um, confront the American Navy, um, but others don't. Others head south to the island of Fueta Ventura uh, where waiting for them is Adolf Hitler and Ava Brown. Um, and they then transfer from Fuerteventura by boat out to the U-boats, and the U-boats arrive off the coast of um, Argentina 53 days later after being submerged for most of that time. Must be a really uncomfortable, unpleasant um, trip. But um, I'm not sympathising with it. <laughs>
0: No, no, indeed. And uh, uh, you and uh, Simon have written about how uh, in Spain and uh, offshore islands the uh, preparations had been made for this submarine evacuation of Hitler to Latin America.
1: Yeah, I I think that Bormann has has laid out a whole bunch of different escape plans. Um, But as the Soviets um, converge on Berlin, some of them become less and less possible. Um I mean they've got huge Blom and Voss uh, flying boats waiting for them in um Neopinamunda, travel Mundo. And they're shot to pits by Canadian um Royal Canadian Air Force fighter jets um who are sent up there. So they can't get away on these huge Blom and Voss um boats. So there there are fewer and fewer opportunities to get out. <coughs> and I think the U boat one was the really, you know, the, the final. If, if we don't get out in this one, we're not getting out. And, um, that's why it was, that's why it was eventually used. I mean, what's interesting to me, Dave, is that, um, Admiral Canaris, who had been head of military intelligence, the Abwehr in Nazi Germany, um, who later was, um, executed, uh, by the Nazis for trying to negotiate a peace settlement with the Allies. Um, Canaris had, done all the groundwork in Argentina during the First World War. He knew the places where they should stay. He'd stayed at them himself. He knew the network. He'd been kept in close contact with his networks in Argentina. Um, so the, the area was, was prepared and planned, maybe not for Hitler, just for Hitler, but for a great many Nazis um, and other European fascists. As I said earlier, the whole Croatian cabinet got out to Argentina with Croatia's gold. Um, under Ante Pavlich, um, in 46. So they had a comfortable home waiting for them and a place where they could fit right in. Um, you know, it was a, not quite a military dictatorship, uh, but Prom was pretty close to it in many ways. Uh, people didn't talk about new arrivals. Um, if new arrivals got into a German community, um, they just melted into the background and um, anybody going looking for them that didn't melt into the background would have been dealt with very quickly. So it's a very safe place to go. Um, It's also really difficult to assault in any way. Um, You've had to maybe persuade Brazil to let us put um, an airborne division in there. Uh, Brazil did fight with us during World War II. Um, My father actually fought alongside um, the Smoking Cobras uh, in Italy. But... It, it's really a really difficult place to assault, a really difficult place to get intelligence out of as well, um, because unless you were German and you spoke German fluently, um, you weren't going to get in. So uh, it was very, very well prepared. I mean, Canaris um, was not sentenced to death originally. and He was in a concentration camp, and we found the Enigma machine uh, decoded messages. There's a project out there, mainly in America, where a whole bunch of undecoded Enigmas... Are now being decoded by people on their PCs at home, um, and they post online. And we found the um, we found the uh, message from the two SS officers who had killed Canaris, had arranged for his execution, um, to General Müller in Berlin, um, saying, uh, "We have carried out your orders, your direct orders, and Admiral Canaris is no more. Um, because if Canaris had survived, he would have known all the places that he'd gone to in Argentina." and probably would have spoken
0: to the allies about it. Uh, You mentioned briefly uh, some of the doubles who were present at the Führerbunker in Berlin. I'd like to, uh, we're coming right down to the end of this hour, but you mentioned a Gustav Weber and an unnamed uh, movie actress uh, in uh, Germany who was a remarkable double for Eva Braun. Uh, Tell us about that briefly, if you would.
1: Well, I mean, you know, if, um, basically you don't go looking for dead people, you know, habeas corpus, if they can have the corpses, then, um, then they'll stop looking for them. So that seems to be the simplest way of doing it. I mean, General Muller did exactly the same thing. Um, there was a very cute family grave for this SS, um, high ranking pig, um, which said, to our dear daddy from your family, um, Heinrich Muller. And that was, that was exhumed in the '60s i can 't remember why it was exhumed, but it was exhumed, and in it there were pieces of three separate bodies. There was no single body there, and any of those bodies couldn 't have been Müller anyway, Um couldn 't have been Müller anyway. So the idea was we get a couple of doubles um, we 'll leave them dead in the Fuhrer bunker, and nobody'll go looking for adolf Neva. Um, i mean interesting enough for me, the last pictures of Hitler, which was said to be on his birthday um, april twentieth one thousand nine hundred and forty five <laughs> In Berlin, handing out medals to um, Hitler Youth who had been responsible for the destruction of Soviet tanks, we have had it proved scientifically that this is not Hitler. The face isn't Hitler's, um, and it was also shot on March the 20th, 1945, because it appeared in the April edition of the Hitler Youth magazine, the final edition of the Hitler Youth magazine. Um, <clears throat> so it couldn't have been taken on April 20th, and it also isn't Hitler. So we know that his double had been used a number of times, and we also know that he had a number of doubles, uh, much like Stalin. Stalin also had a number of doubles. Um, Churchill famously had at least one. Um, <clears throat> and that was the reason for it, is that, you know, if the Soviets found the bodies of Hitler and Eva in the bunker, um, they would stop looking for him. The reality is, is they found no bodies that were Hitler um, or Eva. Um, What they did find and were handed over were six bad doubles of Hitler, to quote their doctors. Um, And of Hitler himself, there was no sign.
0: Uh, You also mentioned, uh, we we talked about the feint in which uh, uh, the sea wolf, uh, wolf pack basically, was used as a feint. Uh, off, uh in, in the northern part of the Atlantic to draw off American anti-submarine naval forces while the actual U-boats ferrying Hitler and Eva Brown and others to Latin America went south. Uh, in this time period, the chief of the, uh, of operations for the Argentine Navy decided to call off all coastal patrols. Which I thought was quite interesting. If you would, just, we'll, we'll wrap this hour up with that. Uh, if you would just develop that for us very briefly, because we're almost out of time.
1: Well, Peron's the, the minister for war at the time, and it's one call from um, <coughs> the Nazi agent Juan Peron and Juan Domingo Peron, and um, the guy running the coast does as he's told.
0: So basically, all of a sudden, no coastal patrols as the uh, escape submarines are nearing the Argentine. Yeah, I
1: phase. mean, Bormann is in, Borman is in, com, in, in um, communications with the high-ranking people in Argentina, the, um, the Nazi high-ranking intelligence team in Argentina. He's also in contact with the boats, and um, yeah, he's in contact with the way stations through which Hitler has to pass to get to Fleta Ventura to board those boats. That's why they call him the Telex General. And people think, oh no, we broke the German codes at the end of World War II, we broke the Enigma machine. Yeah, we broke the Enigma machine, but we didn't break everything else they were using, um, some of which were described as the world's first digital computers. So they were still talking to each other. And this um, communication system was used well after the war as well. We've never broken it.
0: All righty. Well, I'd like to continue this discussion because uh, we're at the end of World War Two, with Hitler having affected his escape, Martin Bormann having set up, uh, the, or set the stage for a revival of Nazi interests in Latin America and elsewhere. And I'd like to continue this in our next discussion. My guest is Gerard Williams along with Simon Dunstan, the co-author of Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler, and also the basis for the Hunting Hitler series, which has been, I believe, on the History Channel, has it not? Yeah, I
1: wouldn't describe it as the basis for hunting Hitler, but there was um, there was some information within hunting Hitler that uh, yeah, the grey wolf and we agree about.
0: And uh, we're going to continue this discussion in another hour. Uh, for Gerard Williams, this is Dave Emery saying this concludes for the record program nine fourteen interview with Gerard Williams, co-author of Grey Wolf. This is being recorded on July sixth of the year 2016."